1: you are listening to the preacher boys podcast a podcast shedding light on decades of mental physical and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental baptist movement the testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors Now here is your host Eric Skwarzynski.
0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys Podcast. I'm sitting down with Tina and Tracy. Would both of you mind introducing yourselves and let people know how you got introduced to the IFB movement?
2: I'll go first. My name is Tina Simmons, and we were uh, not born into the IFB. It kind of evolved over time, but when it did, it got. I guess it. We were really started to get really introduced to it. We must have been about seventh or eighth grade. We started out in a Baptist church in Michigan. At that time, it was not an IFB church. And then our dad in the early 70s, we moved from Michigan to Lynchburg, Virginia. He attended, at that point, it was the Liberty Bible Institute before it became Liberty University. I don't have any negative memories from being a part of that. And then through the years, as he went in and pastored churches, we became a part of the IFB. And
3: that's how that's how it all started for me. Tracy? Yeah, the same. My parents became um Christians, were actually um saved when I think we were about five or six when we started attending a small Baptist church that was not IFB. And so from there, again, he got. He felt that he was called to preach, and we moved to Virginia, and that was kind of the, <laughs> the beginning of the end for us. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Right. So around what age were you relocated to Virginia, and what was kind of that first inkling that something was kind of going in the wrong direction?
2: I would say my first memory of something going in the wrong direction was actually the first church that we were in. It wasn't IFB but I do remember I was probably we probably about third grade and the auditorium was um, glass. There were glass door doors and you could see into the auditorium and we were not allowed into the auditorium, but we, I remember watching and what had happened was the pastor's daughter got pregnant. She was a teenager and she was up in front of the church. <laughs> and at that young age, I knew something. I knew something was wrong. I felt bad for her being so young. And then as, as time went on, being in Lynchburg, I don't have any negative memories of the church, but there were already elements of physical abuse in our home. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it had actually uh, happened a few times when we were smaller with our dad. And then after we left Lynchburg, Virginia. My dad's first church that I ever pastored was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and we were part of a church there for about a year or so, and we moved to Reno, Nevada, and that's pretty much when it all um, started falling apart, and that church in Reno, Nevada is Calvary Baptist Church. I rem- we were in seventh grade, and there was sexual abuse happening in the daycare at the church, we had a teacher who was very inappropriate he would call you to the front of the class he would put your his arm around your waist and i knew that was wrong i felt i felt it at one point all of the girls were at, in gym class one day we went across the street to the high school and he went in the ladies room and took all of our clothes and hid them and that whole situation church situation apparently the families who had been there had been there a long time and the pastor who had um, passed away and his family was still there there was a lot of fighting it ended up being a church split Hmm. and so that church i know that tracy has her own stories of what happened there
3: yeah i do so like tina said we were in seventh grade and The church also had a uh, Christian school attached to it, and it was a pretty decent-sized school. We came in in the middle of the year, which we, we went to a lot of schools, and usually it was in the middle of the year somewhere. So, you know, during that time, you know, of course, we were very aware of, you know, the boys that we thought were cute and that kind of thing. And, you know, my dad was just very, like, very, very strict on that. So we went. There was a skating roller skating <laughs> trip during during the school day, and we were all there and Our youth pastor was there, and he and my dad we had a really good relationship and so there was a couple's skate, so I had one of the boys come and say, "Would you want to skate with me and And we held hands, and I remember thinking it must be okay, you know because they're saying it's okay and A couple days later, uh, we were in school. I was in class and my dad stormed through the doors, yanked me out of my chair in front of the class. He dragged me, literally dragged me by the arm forcefully in and out of every class looking for my mom. And at that point, I still didn't know what was wrong. And once he found my mom, he took us into the teacher's lounge and somebody had told him that I had been holding hands with this boy And I, Tina and I were talking about this the other day because I was, I thought he was gonna kill me. Mm. He was so angry and I mean, it was explosive, violent. I was thinking, I wish I could run away at that moment. There was no way to escape. You know, I just, you just, I just remember feeling so trapped. Right. And that ended with me, he made me go in the bathroom. I had to grab onto the towel bar and he took his belt off and just, it just, it went on for a while. It was, that was the first major, well, there was a couple of things when we were smaller than that along that line, Mm -hmm. but where I was, you know, it breaks you.
4: Right, right.
3: It breaks your Mm -hmm. spirit but that's also something that he believed because that's, you know, what they were supposed to do as parents, you know, break their spirits. Yeah. And that definitely happened that day for me.
0: So it sounds like it was something that kind of developed then. It wasn't it wasn't something that your parents held to strongly until they started getting further into that. Is that a correct kind of understanding of it or
2: Yes. I think to the physical abuse, there was an instance when we were about five, five or six, and we both got wailed on. And then there was another instance in we were when we were living in Virginia fourth or fifth grade. I got spanked so hard with a board that my backside was just black. Hmm. And it scared me. And I showed my older sister. And then she told my dad, and you know he asked me, he's like, "Well, let me see." And I just pulled my pants down a little bit, and I don't remember his reaction, but I don't think after that point we were spanked with a uh, board anymore. Okay. But as we got older, and the IFB beliefs of, you know, there was the you know breaking their spirit, and we went through the I'm going to spank you till you cry, then I'm going to spank you till you stop crying. Uh, so it, it got, it got worse after I, there was an element of that that was already there, but I feel that there was a part of him that from his childhood, he had a horrible childhood and we didn't know till after he passed away that there had been a suicide attempt in his early twenties. Hmm. And I kind of, my feeling is, is that, salvation and church and all of that was a band-aid and then if you already had problems you know you don't admit it you don't admit it because then you don't trust the lord right. um, so the real issues that were ingrained in him were never they were never resolved yeah so the ifb it just kind of made it worse
0: yeah, worse than the problems that were already there. And it's definitely right. not a culture where, especially for a guy within that culture, there's not a lot of room to expose weakness or to show, no. you know, any uh-uh. sense of struggle, you know, for anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, even yeah. outside that, but in such a male-dominated culture, it's very, yeah. very frowned upon to, to come out with yeah. any kind of struggle with, you know, mental health or things like that.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So. So this was around seventh grade. So what was the, you know, past that point, what was the rest of that kind of high school career like? And, and, you know, did this worsen? Did it stay consistent? Like what was kind of the progression from that point on?
2: It got worse. (laughs) Hmm. And Actually in seventh, we went to a total of 11 schools. Um, In seventh grade, we went to three schools. Uh We went from, And correct me if I'm wrong, Tracy, Las Vegas. No, we went from Reno. We moved back to Michigan that year. And then we were put in public school. And then, what was after that,
3: Trace? We were in public school, and then we went back into a a really small Christian school when we were in ninth grade, there's like nineteen students.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And then in tenth through twelfth grade, we ended up at another Christian school. It was a little bit bigger.
4: Right.
3: But during that time, you know, it did get worse. Right. And we just you know, and here's the thing, it's like looking back, like we were really good kids. Mm-hmm. Really good kids but there was always the element of, you know, you had to play the game, Right.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: you know? So not only, you know, having that fear of, you know, when, when is he gonna blow again, but Mm -hmm. every day it was a, it was a mind game that no kids should ever be a part of. Right. You know, it, it was a whole thing, the walking on eggshells, the, you know, you just never knew what was going to happen next.
4: Right.
3: Yeah. You did. So you develop a persona, a persona <laughs> of, you know, you're going to do everything right. And you still, but that's the thing is like, we still wanted to like, I just remember like wanting his approval, like wanting him to say, you know, you're a really good daughter, Or I really appreciate you. Yeah. Or I see that, you know, that you know, this is what you're really good at, or whatever. And there was just, it was never anything like that. It was just, it was a survival game every day. That's that's the way I remember it.
0: Right. Well, first of all, I'm curious what what was the reason for all the switches of schools? Was it they weren't strict enough, or like why why the constant kind of roulette of different schools
3: <laughs> it's a good name for it
2: <laughs> the we went through a church split in Reno so once that split we moved back to Michigan okay and then we had to live with our um, grandparents for several weeks so we went to school by them And then we ended up moving to a different area of town. So we had to go to that school over there. And then seventh, eighth grade, we were in public school. And then in ninth grade, they put us back in a Christian school. But we were talking about this and we were bullied in public school. They knew that we were different and at that, at that point we weren't wearing, you know, long skirts and, and those types of things, but we, I don't know how they knew, (laughs) but we were separately bullied in different ways. Right. And it was, it was, it was horrible. One of them, Tracy was with a teacher. Mine was with a kid in class. He exposed himself to me another day. I was alone in the hallway and a group of boys surrounded me and one of them, I remember he had my arm and he was dragging me along the lockers and the padlocks were like hitting my back. And there was a guy in the back and I I remember his name to this day and he was like cheering them on. I mean, somebody grabbed my chest and they're like, do you like that? You preacher girl. And then our brother was also separately bully they knew uh-huh. that we were preacher's kids
0: huh oh wow. so you uh, couldn't yeah you couldn't escape that kind of behavior even outside of that movement
2: Yeah, no. like. mm-hmm. right and then the school that we were putting in ninth grade was an extremely teeny, teeny tiny church they had no business having a christian school right. and we were seventh Through 11th grade, we were all in the same room. We were all taught the same thing. Our teacher was a retired pastor missionary who used to sit at his desk and literally yell at us and point his finger at us and say, payday Sunday. And I remember thinking, I don't even know what I've done. (laughs) You know, he would just like yell at us. And we, we, I don't know how we ended up, my brother, sister, and I were kind of having the, being made as troublemakers there, but apparently they went to our dad and said, either your kids go or I'm going.
4: And
2: of course, we got in a lot of trouble. My brother was goofing off one day just to be funny and put his backpacker on his neck and threw himself off the chair. And I admittedly did hit the preacher's daughter. I don't know why. I did, (laughs) but I also, I also got saved that year, and I do believe that was the day that I was saved, so if anything good came of that, that was awesome, but I was also heavily, heavily preyed upon by my teacher's husband. They were Bob Jones graduates. Okay. I never told this story till a couple of months ago. I told my mom, and I, I said his name, and I said he would catch me in the hallway and have me jump up on a table, and he would stand in between my legs and talk to me. He would write me love letters, and I had one in class one day, and his wife asked me what I was reading and demanded that I give it to her, and I wouldn't give it to her. Right. And he ended up being a part of my dad's The Last Church and caught me alone in a Sunday school room downstairs. I was by myself and he had me up against the wall and I was painting and he said, you know how cute you are with that paint on your face. I was able to get away from it, but I... I talked to my mom and there were stories about him that I remember had something else to do with other young girls in a church. And I talked to my mom and she said, if your dad knew, he would have never had him there. But I think that this man went to my dad and said, well, I can't be at this other church anymore. Basically, we would give me a chance. And my dad not knowing what the issue was. And at one point, I I will go forward and move forward with, I feel that he needs to be called out for what he did. And I know that I'm not the only one. I know there's more people, more girls that he did that to. Yeah. But um, that happened at that in that ninth grade church. And then we left there 11th and 12th grade. We were in another Christian school and that school is out of um, Michigan after I left, but Tracy's. The guy that she married from Hiles Anderson was a teacher at the school, and there was a big thing that came out about sexual abuse with children in the school. I don't remember a lot about it, but I know that Tracy does. I wasn't there at the time it was after we left.
0: So talk to me a little bit about that. Like the Obviously, that's a pretty shattering thing to happen, especially within a mm-hmm. religious or spiritual context. So how did that mm-hmm. affect in the immediate kind of circumstance, did it kind of shake your sense of security in that world? I mean, I know there wasn't much sense of security at that point anyway, due to the yeah. other experiences you were having, but what did that do? Did that affect, you know, did that give you a desire to get out? You know, did that give you, did you still feel like, oh, this is an anomaly? This isn't, you know, everything in this world? Like, what was the mindset at that point?
2: That's just the way that it was. Hmm. Honestly, I didn't know like the on that point. I didn't, I never even thought about it, that whole IFB, that any of that was wrong, because that's, that's all we knew. And after we left, got out of high school, we, and that was the, the ACE program, we had to go to housing in college. We were not given a choice. Okay. We had to go. And. So then, that was our next step. It was on to House Anderson from there.
0: Right. Which, uh, for anybody who's listened to the show for any length of time, knows that that's not exactly a good upgrade um, going <laughs> to um, House mm-hmm. from there. So, what was the experience? I mean, first time leaving the house, you're headed to House Anderson, which I'm sure at the at the time you were familiar with. But tell mm-hmm. me about kind of arriving on campus there and the experience kind of becoming a part of that very specific part of the IFB culture.
3: You want to start Trace? You know, I remember I, I didn't want to go there. I had so many other, you know, dreams, you know, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a nurse, you know, but we didn't have any other choice. So, you know, it's funny because you, you, anyone would have thought the way that we were raised, like we probably would have fared really well in that environment. Mm. And I did not. <laughs> so I was, I was, I, I, I did not like being there. I tried, but there was just so many things that were, I don't, it's just so many things that didn't make sense.
0: Okay. Such as like the rules or?
3: You know, yeah, the rules and the, you know, like having, you know, the the dress checks and, you know, all of those things. I had, you know, we grew up, my mom was an amazing housekeeper and, you know, we're all pretty tidy people. And, you know, white glove inspection, you know, I failed it. And I ended up with demerits through nothing that was even intentional, just little things along the way, that I was campused. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. So I can't remember the period of time. It might have been like a week, but other than you have to go to class and then you have to go to your room and every hour until like 10 o'clock at night, you have to go down and sign a sheet. So you're just really cut off from everything. And then I also had to meet with Mrs. Evans. Okay. And I was just... You know I was lost I was right. so lost you know but the whole thing was you're gonna go to Hiles Anderson and you're gonna meet you know a preacher boy that's what <laughs> that's what God's will is for you right. you're gonna As get your young, MRS,
2: de- MRS yep, degree
3: yep and yep so you know sure enough within it was less than a year that I you know there he was <laughs> And a lot of it was because that's what the right thing was to do to be in God's will. Hmm. But a lot of it too was just to get out of there. Right. You know, so I already knew at that point, I knew I didn't like being there. Yeah. So that was the other option, which ended up being not a good option.
2: Another <laughs> another tragedy. Yeah, another tragedy. Both yes. of us. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And and what was your experience there, Tina? Was it this the same exact kind of situation?
2: Oh, definitely. I remember taking us by the bus loads into Chicago, freezing cold, dropping us off with no adult supervision, <laughs> going door to door soul winning because you have to put on your soul winning sheet. That I actually said. To how many people, if you were to die today, are you going to go to heaven? Mm. I, so there was that. I remember one time coming back, my feet were so frozen. I took my shoes off. I was limping down the hallway at school, and somebody told me to put my shoes on, I was going to get in trouble. Wow. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get in trouble then because I can't even put my feet in shoes right now. Right. And it was the little everyday, chipping away at you if you didn't dot your i's and crash your t's what is who is now my ex-husband we were sitting closer than six inches together in chapel so we got in trouble for that again failing the white glove test i remember there were certain sundays i forget how they did it but you had to sit in the middle the mezzanine of the first baptist church so there was the main floor the mezzanine from what I remember it had like really low ceilings. It was kind of dark and then the balcony, but you had to sit in the mezzanine. I honestly think I just put my coat on over my pajamas and went to church because <laughs> I knew I had to sit in the mezzanine
4: right.
2: and, but Tracy and I talk about it now. I don't know how she did it, but cause apparently they would check your room to make sure that you went soul winning, but she, she never went, did you?
3: I didn't, I did not. <laughs> I admire that. I love how she did it. And I, I'm, I am she... a rule follower to a fault, <laughs> even to this day. And just looking back, I I used to hide. I'd be like myself, by myself, all day long.
0: Funny. But They're listening would, to this yeah. right now thinking, <laughs> what? Oh <my> gosh. <laughs>
3: yeah. But, yeah, I would hide.
2: But, you know, That's... even every night coming into your dorm room and checking your bed with a flashlight, the hallway devotions, And the only thing I remember about that, other than number one, feeling very uncomfortable, is number two, if there were a couple girls there that had like really bad past and their testimonies were glorified. I'm like, okay, well, I just can't, I grew up in a Christian home and I'm saved. I don't have that kind of a story. So even on that level, I felt like I wasn't good enough. Because like I you weren't bad some, enough
0: before <laughs> to be right, good
2: right. enough. Right, I wasn't a yeah. uh, solid gold dancer that apparently somebody used to be. You know, like huh. even that wasn't even that wasn't good enough. Right. And I also remember the guys that we were dating. You know, they got to live off campus. Is it Baptist City? I think they called it. But as a female, like you had to stay on campus. You worked for. I'm assuming was just barely pennies. It went to your school bill. Who knows how much it was. Right. You were not allowed to leave, but the men were given these freedoms that we were not given. And they just never sat with me. Mm-hmm. It didn't right. make sense um, to me.
0: I, I, I just thought about this. And I, so w- what time period was this about what year?
2: 1985 uh, ish.
0: So, so Jack Hiles was still yeah.
5: there, oh, he's yes. still the, okay. Hi, I'm Jack Hiles, and I'm the founder and chancellor of Howells-Anderson College. I'm standing and looking at our campus, and I'm describing in my own mind what Howells-Anderson College is all about. Howells-Anderson College, I often say, is not a college, it's an army. Our students are not students, they're soldiers. Our faculty is not a faculty. They're sergeants and trainers, training an army to reach America with the gospel of Christ and to save our country. That isn't all. Howells Anderson College is not only an army, it's a family. I'm not the chancellor, I'm the father. The students are not the students. They're my children. The faculty do- does not work for me. We work together, we're a family. Howells-Anderson College is an army. It's a family. That isn't all. Howells-Anderson College is a church. These are not just my students. They're my members. I'm not just their chancellor. I'm their preacher. And this college is owned and operated by the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. We invite you to come and see us. And if God leads, become a part of us. Join our army with which we can save America. Join our family and be one of my kids.
0: So I have to ask this because I haven't talked to anybody. I, everyone I've talked to has been there for the Scott period, but not the Hiles period. Mm-hmm. So is the is the Jack Hiles Ladies Nights a real thing? that <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've never, Eric, I, I've read about it.
2: Worst. It was one of the worst most uncomfortable things I've ever been through, well, first of all,
3: and that's so that it, funny you would bring it up because Tina and I have talked about this so many times. I've read about years. it so
0: many times, but it's been it's one of those things where like I have no trouble believing that it's true, but it's also so bizarre. it's hard to imagine it's it so being as weird as it is, you know I
2: uh-huh. remember the night that he came, you know, coming from an a c e school where he basically, do your own work, grade your own work. We were thrown into these chapel-sized classes of hundreds of students, which I used to sign in and leave.
3: (laughs) um, (laughs) Me too.
2: But I wasn't prepared to, in a quote-unquote classroom setting, to like take notes and to know what to study for. So the night that he came, I had a test the next day that I was very nervous about. But we had to go to the chapel because Jack Hiles was coming for the girls. And how did how did they?
0: That's all they said. Like there was no. How nope. did they? They didn't flower it up more than that, or like. Give oh it yeah, a? it
2: was. He's coming. You have to go. There was. It was like
0: it was like Christmas Eve for the, most of these
3: girls. I mean, it was just like a frenzy that. I don't know where all of that energy came from, but it was
0: <laughs> unreal. The stories are true, Eric. That's so weird because mm-hmm. that's it, so weird. Is it? I mean, that. I mean, obviously, that's super weird. But it's it's one of those things where, like, you hear these stories, and you're like, no, they can't be true. But then you, what you just said is a is an angle that I've never really thought about. Is it's true? Like, there was a. I mean, he was be loved by everybody in that world. So it would be a, like, it probably wasn't recognized as being as weird as it was just because people were probably just as excited about it as he was.
3: But looking back now, it's like, you know, I don't know how old he would have been at the time, maybe 50s to have these young college age girls that were literally sitting at his feet. Right. I mean, on right. the stage, like just surrounding him, like adoring, longing in their eyes, and he, you know, he knew what he was doing. Right. He it, that was that was all about him, and he knew it. Power.
0: Right. He wanted it that so, way. So, for those who are listening that that have no idea what we're talking about, and they're just hearing me say, "Oh, that's unbelievable. Oh, that's true." Can you? Can you share basically what those were and and kind of what the, how they played out for somebody who's listening who has like no experience or understanding of what this is? Because I, I mean, I could say what I've heard, but mm-hmm. but I'm curious what the actual experience was and, you know, what, how that actually played out.
2: Um, on the website, you have a clip of girls standing outside of his office singing about We Love You Preacher song, Right. That yeah. and we have both recently watched that and it literally made me nauseous and cry at the same time. Mm. Yeah. And I felt bad for my nineteen year old self. And the thing is, is that Tracy and I we never bought into any of it fully. Right. I don't know how or why, but there was always that something's not right. Yeah. But we were obligated to go, you know. Too scared not to go, right. and it was it was unbelievable. The crying, the I was watching an old Michael Jackson video the other day, and people were like trembling and crying. That's what right. it
3: was like.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. he was a, he was a rock star pretty much.
3: Yes, yeah. he was.
0: Yeah,
3: but you know, he would show up and he would bring you know it was you know food and i think he would from what i remember tina you know, he would like give away things and
0: um why i'd heard about you know him giving money for like them to go shopping and
3: mm-hmm. you know
0: things like that mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it was maybe i'm trying to remember who it was it was either uh Boyle glover or um vic uh victor nishik that mm-hmm. um had like printed out some of the songs and things that were sung and it's Uh like you you Mm -hmm. read this stuff and you're like you know I don't argue too much with people about you know is the IFB in general a cult you know I've I I I waver back and forth on whether I use that terminology sometimes but when it Mm -hmm. comes to Hiles himself I have no reservation saying he was like a true you know like he was a straight up cult leader and I point yes, to yes. stuff like that as kind of the proof of that we love you preacher yes we do we don't have anyone as
4: much as you you're not with us we're blue oh preacher we love you we love you oh
5: now I know what this
1: <laughs> is
4: Done. We'll just pretend about Bye. it. Bye. This is
1: the Uber e? yes.
4: We, can't see, we can't, see you. You short. Short. can't see you back here. We can't see you. You're too short. You're too short. It's too short. Beautiful. Oh. It's worth it, isn't it? You look insane. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't changed this while ago. No.
1: <laughs> Thank
5: you, girls.
4: Yes, sir. Yep. Where's
5: everybody been this morning? This is the only group to come.
4: Well. They don't love you They you. like we do. They don't love you as more than they They don't love you as much as we do. As we We're the have <laughs> got boyfriends house. now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> Well, because, so you know, you're the first one taken, and so they had to go get the second pass. I don't like Thanks a lot.
0: Hi. And that's—he's the one person I'll go to the maths with, you know, people about, you know, was he actually a cult leader? Was he actually dangerous? Like, yes, <laughs> no, yeah, no reservation there. And you have to look no further than those clips to see that, mm-hmm. and and the amount of influence, you know, not to mention the, you know the sermons where he said if i put poison out and told one of you to drink it like you should drink it no questions asked you know like mm-hmm. yep. that's some you know that's kind of cult leader 101 <laughs> kind yeah. of stuff yeah it is um, Absolutely.
5: perhaps these former church members recollect jack hiles 1990 poison yes. sermon i have some poison i plan to pour in here notice the the bones and the skull there now then if I walked up tonight and I said to you, I've got something I want you to drink. In fact, Brother Colston, I'd like you, you don't mind to drink this? How you like that? He said, if you want me to, I'll drink it. That's what you call real loyalty. It has the ring of Jonestown to it. That was the mass suicide in Guyana in 1978 by followers of cult leader Jim Jones. Boyle Glover is an attorney and former Hiles church member. He's written a book on Hiles called Fundamental Seduction. What they have done basically is, is what every every cult does. They exchange the truth for whatever comes out of the mouth of the leader. And that is a cult. That is not Christianity. You
0: have these experiences. You're never really truly bought in, but you still find a husband in this world. I'm assuming both of you graduated or did you end up Leaving a little bit early, like what was kind of the pathway out of the Hiles sector, and if I'm brushing over anything that's important, just feel free to to circle back and and touch on it.
2: I think get, getting married was part of getting getting out. Okay, even though we still, Mike's husband, Mike's husband was on the security team at House Anderson, and he got his unaccredited master's degree (laughs) but it was it was a competition to get married don't you think so Tracy like if you if you were getting married that was like the be all end all and my dad openly said I'm sending my girls to Hal's Anderson College to get their MRS degree Mm -hmm. so that's what we did Uh and as for me I had zero business being married at 19 years old right zero But it was a way out, even though we still attended church there and my husband was still working security there. It was a way to get out Out of being, you know, but it's funny though; we hadn't been there too long. And my dad left his church in Michigan and he decided that he wanted more schooling than what he had had back in Lynchburg. So, during our first year at Hiles Anderson, my parents moved from Michigan to Indiana. And okay. once they did that, and this is before we got married, Tracy and I were able to get off campus and live with our parents, which I think that made it a little bit better. Right. I don't remember at that time being, like, getting in trouble like we had but we had moved um, back home with both of them before we each got married or off campus. It was near the college, but off campus.
0: Right. Okay. So from that point on actually getting out completely, like what was the path out Were you guys still attending first Baptist of Hammond for a while? Did your husbands take on staff roles? Like what was kind of the next, the next step there?
3: So this is Tracy. For For me, we ended up, <clears throat> the guy I married, we ended up moving back to Michigan, actually the area that we were up in. He had been offered a teaching position there. Okay. So we moved back there. I was only at Hiles Anderson um, for just, actually it was just a few months. I ended up with, when my parents moved there, moved home with them and I actually ended up I had mono really bad, Okay. so that took me out of the second semester, and then just moved back to Michigan, and attended at that point, went back to attending IFB church there.
0: Okay, got it, and then uh, what about you, Tina?
3: Um,
2: my ex-husband was still on security staff after, after we got married. And then I went back for a little while as a student, but I didn't graduate. Okay. So we ended up leaving the Hammond area. Mike's husband had lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for a long time. So we went and ended up working in IFB Church in Charlotte.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. So, So what was that experience transitioning? Like you get out of kind of the one of the weirdest strictest kind of (laughs) versions of this what was the experience kind of going out on your quote unquote on your own and and moving to these different locations like what did you feel like was this was there any incline that kind of took you up out of it did you feel like it was just more of the same different location like what was kind of the the vibe there um I
2: think for me for the church that we were in it was more of the same but it didn't It was more the same that I thought was I didn't buy into honestly. It was it was a lot more of the same. And definitely there was a little more freedom being, you know, out on my own and being married, but still very much in in that world. Um and then it was during that time when our world imploded. My dad was still a student at Hiles Anderson College. We had moved on. My parents always had a difficult marriage. They had a difficult marriage before they became Christians. We very much lived under a dictatorship in our home. We always felt that our mom was our protector. She stepped in many times during our spankings (laughs) and you know, asked him to stop. You know, whenever our dad left home, there was always like this collective of relief. But so we I was living in North Carolina, Tracy was in Michigan, my dad was attending Hiles Anderson. I remember him talking about getting demerits and I kind of thought it was funny because I'm like, okay. I remember thinking, I don't remember exactly what happened, but I remember thinking, oh, well maybe he's realizing now that it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I don't know if he was actively enrolled at the school at the time, but he was working at a prison. And I believe it was near like Michigan City, um, Indiana. And we left home and my mom had had enough. And my parents were separated. My dad was working at the prison, and he was also renting a room to live at the prison. And my first remembrances of going into this part of our story is receiving phone calls and seeing your dad just called me. This is my mom. You know, your dad just called me and said that he's going to kill himself. And I remember writing to him. I believe it was a Father's Day card. And Tracy's first child daughter, she was only probably about a month old. And I said, you know, dad, we love you. And you have a granddaughter now. And um, just letting him know that, you know, we, we loved him. And I believe that there was a follow-up call, a similar call that, you know, your dad said he's going to kill himself. And on August 3rd, 1988, it was a Sunday night in church. I remember feeling something was wrong and didn't quite know. It's funny because I think I remember where I was second or third row back in the pew. Something felt wrong. And the next morning, my brother-in-law called. He lived um, in Hammond. And he asked to speak to my ex-husband. And he never called. And I said, well, you know, he's already at work. He's like, okay, I was going to call at work. And I gave him a couple minutes and I called my husband's work and asked for him. And I said, it's my dad, isn't it? And he said, yes. And I said, is he dead? And he said, no, not yet. I'm coming home. And that's how I found out that my dad had Committed suicide. Um, he actually did it. My parents were separated. My mom was living in Dyer, Indiana, right right outside of Hammond. Uh, my mom got up in the morning and opened her bedroom curtains, and my dad's car was parked out there. So she thought, well, maybe he's at the door, and he wasn't at the door. And she walked out to his car, and my mom was the one that found my dad. Wow. And yeah. So, our world shattered everything that we knew, everything that we were taught, everything that we tried to hold on to. And it's funny with our dad, you know, even with the physical abuse and all of that, I really loved my dad. And It was, it was devastating to say the least. So, Uh and then I'll let Tracy share her memory of that Uh time.
3: So I'm just going to back up a little bit. So, you know, leading up to going to Hiles Anderson and of course getting married, there was such, you know, everything was about you're going to go there and you're going to get married. That's what that's God's will for you. If you don't, you're not in the will of God, you know, So, you know, so who wouldn't want that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I remember at 19, shortly after getting married, thinking, what's wrong? Why aren't you happy? You're in the will of God. This is what he wanted for you. Why were, you know, I was so unhappy. I was so lost. And That feeling at that time was, I think it was at that time that I was coming to terms with the lies. Mm -hmm. You know, but at that time, I already had this made this decision that changed the course of my life. I got married, I had kids. But I was, I had no idea who I was. Mm -hmm. Just lost. And where do you go? You know, because it basically, you know, we went from, you know, living at home in a, you know, really controlled, you know, environment to Hiles Anderson. That was the same way, if not worse and then get got married to a male that was raised in that way again very controlling i had no idea who i was i was never i did not have a voice i did not have dreams so when i actually saw my dad ah, uh, just the week before that he passed away I had I had uh, my daughter in June, and he passed away in August. So I hadn't seen him since March, just a few months before. And I took her to Indiana to meet him. And he his physical appearance had changed so much during that short time. He had lost a lot of weight. His hair had turned gray. And I remember talking to him and just thinking, just focus on his eyes because those were the only things that looked familiar. Those looked like my dad's eyes. Nothing else did. And um, he actually got to hold uh, my daughter and he asked if he could take me out to dinner. And and, uh, so we went, you know, just he and I went to dinner together. And I remember looking at his hand when he was driving, his hand was shaking. And so just... So this was just days before he died and, you know, he was just distraught. You know, my mom wanted, you know, wanted to get divorced. He could never be a pastor again. He could never, his value or the value that was placed on him by the IFB, there was no value. Right. He was getting divorced. He was not able to be a pastor anymore, and he he was lost. Yeah, sure. and that was I mean, looking back now, you know, I recognized that that feeling that he had, that you know, the look that he had. What am I going to do? He kept asking me, "What am I going to do?" Right. And so I, you know, I stayed with my mom, and a couple of days later, it was on a Saturday. He He knocked on the door and I went to get the door and I saw him getting in his car. He left my mom a dozen roses. She agreed to go out to dinner with him that night and she did. Um, This was Saturday night, just a couple nights before he passed away. And then, you know, I had gone home and I got up on that Monday morning. It was about eight o'clock. Same thing. My brother-in-law called and, and he said, you know, that, you know, your dad shot himself and he's still alive and, and you, you know, how fast can you get here? Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, I just, like Tina said, it was just everything that we had ever known. Anything that we had ever known about, you know, the Lord will get you through it. (laughs) Trust in the Lord. Everything was, you know, it was really destroyed.
2: Right. The last time that I, this is Tina, the last time I saw my dad, the church that I was a part of in North Carolina graciously flew me to see him. And he had admitted himself to a um, psychiatric ward. Well, I flew to see him in, in the hospital. And I remember sitting next to him and thinking, he was really old and he was only 42
4: mm-hmm.
2: and he took me and he showed me his room and how he had made his bed and this little craft that he made. He asked the nurses if um, he could give it to me and he gave, it was Mother's Day weekend and he gave me a carnation and a styrofoam cup full of water and he asked me, he said, "We did this to your mom for me? And when I left the hospital, I my mom picked me up, and I looked back in the window, and he was waving at me, and that's the last time I saw him. Wow.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to to talk about that, but I mean, one thing that I think you, both of you hit on was, you know, in in many ways, you know, he was while not faultless, he was in many ways a victim of that movement Mm -hmm. as well. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you, I mean, you said it, but the way that in that world with just normal life circumstances that were happening and, and things that, you know, you know, things like divorce, things like can be essentially, you know, as far as the IFB goes, that can, in his mind, I could see how he could say, you know, man, my, my life's done. Like I, I've, I've taken steps too far. Like there's no coming back from this. Yeah, And, you know, and that, and that's, I mean, that's tragic to, to think that, Mm -hmm. you know, as a, you said forties, like 45,
2: 42, 43,
0: 42. Yeah. Like at that age to, to think that, you know, it's, you can't recover from this. You know, that's to me, that's incredibly sad. You know, that's, and that's something where, you know, again, I, I, I've said it earlier, but you know, I, I don't, I don't like to just, you know, make broad statements or, or you know, talk about, you know, my preferences of why, you know, I don't care for something or things like that. But what I will say is one of my frustrations with the ifb is there is that hopelessness and when you are so performance-based and so Mm -hmm. focused on appearances you know when you feel like you can't keep up those appearances it puts you in a really difficult place (laughs) mentally Mm -hmm. um Mm
4: -hmm.
0: you know and i I know that i mean i know Mm -hmm. i remember times thinking you know even in i mean even junior high before you could even like start living life to feel like oh i've gone too far you know what yeah. if i what if they find out i did this <sighs>
4: you know
0: and it's it's so ridiculous to think that mm-hmm. way but i i appreciate i know it's not that's not a story that's easy to share i appreciate you guys sharing mm-hmm. that because they're, that's something we just don't talk about and and i hinted at it earlier but we don't talk about the mental toll we don't talk about keeping mm-hmm. up with you know, this this alpha culture where you look up to leadership as being flawless. And so I I appreciate you guys sharing that and and for being so open about it. And I think I think it's important for people to hear. I had someone on recently who was a former IFB pastor and talked about, you know, the the reaction to him expressing any kind of struggle with mental health. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just so tragically mishandled. I guess that's Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all I can really add to that. Is it's just a tragically mishandled topic, and you know, it's it's a shame that there's no there's no grace in that area whatsoever. There's Absolutely no, not. No understanding. So, well, uh, I think
3: so too. Is that you know? I remember, you know, any time something would be brought up, you know, whether it was during you know one of his sermons or somebody else's that if you're struggling, you're not in the will of God.
0: Mm, Yeah.
3: You are not letting the Lord take control. You are in control. Mm. And that there, it sets such a dangerous precedent, especially everybody struggles. Right. So the message is you're not allowed to struggle. You're not allowed to talk about it. You know, and I, I hope that, I hope the conversation that we're having right now, if somebody's listening and that's what they've experienced, that it's a lie.
0: Right. It's a lie. Yeah, it's unattainable, first of all, but it's also just a straight up lie. Yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. a, there's no way anyone can meet that kind of requirement. At all. Never,
3: never. And I think that's one of the biggest things that, you know, I can hear from you, Eric, too, is that, you know, we spent our lives always trying to reach something that we didn't even know we could never reach.
0: Right, exactly.
3: Constantly, every single day. Did you read your Bible? Did you go soul winning? Did you, you know, it Did you was pray just...
0: About it?
4: Right.
3: Yeah. It was just this constant, you know, way of living that is impossible for anyone to reach. Right. So then, you know, it takes on all of this like self-loathing. Yeah. How come everybody else can, hmm. you know, everyone else seems fine. Why am I the only one that's struggling, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And people just need to know that that's, it's a lie.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 you touched on this earlier too, and I was going to say it, but I think this is a good spot to, to discuss as well. But, you know, within that culture, especially, you know, specifically within that kind of Hiles-influenced, you know, subsect of that world, you know, mm-hmm. your your identity is not your own. And it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, I, I think one thing from both of your stories that you went from being, you know, you know, your, your father's daughter to being the the college's student to being your husband's wife. And it was never a concern about who are you and, and what are, you know, what are you gifted in? What are you passionate about? What's important to you? What's hurting you? What, what, what's emotionally valuable to you or spiritually valuable to you? And when you live in a culture And and again, I know that there's people probably listening to this who are in that world, and I hope that you're, you know, I hope those listening to this are taking this as genuine concern, because this is a genuine concern I have for people, is when you are living in a culture where you are not your own, where you are not, you know, when you're not your own autonomous being, you know, that, that puts you in a very dangerous spot, because at that point, you're constantly working to make sure everyone else is taken care of at your expense. Mm -hmm. And I I think there's a place for, you know, serving others. I think there's a place to, you know, to work on the needs of others. But if you can't ever take the time to address what's wrong inside of you or what needs to be dealt with inside Mm -hmm. of you, eventually you're going to to burn out one way or another, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's inevitable. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, we see that in, in your story, both, both with the story you just told and with your individual stories, you know, mm-hmm. you, you went from essentially just transferring ownership, you know, from the home yeah. to the college, to the husband.
4: Mm-hmm. And
0: that's a super scary place to be, you know, mm-hmm. it, it might not always look as scary because maybe, you you get lucky with a really gracious husband or maybe you have a really gracious home or maybe it's not but even in that situation that's that's not the best situation that's not the best
4: mm-hmm.
0: you know that's not the best place to be so
4: mm-hmm.
0: so you you mentioned this being you know kind of a shattering experience understandably so for both of you but what was when you say it was shattering what did that what did that situation kind of bring about and what was the the next kind of step taken by both of you? Was that, you know, was that a big eye opener to the culture like we're talking about right now? Was it, you know, was it just, what was the next kind of thought process or action step that was taken from that point on?
3: I think for me, um, this is Tracy, so the, you know the first thing i want to address is kind of the fallout from it okay so this was in 1988 and then you know regardless of religion you did not talk about suicide it was right. a very shameful a very shameful thing to talk about and it just you just did not talk about it so we were 21 and I was living in the city that I, that we were born in and where we lived for years, went to church for years. My dad had churches there, and it's not a very big place. And so he passed on a Monday, and then his funeral was the following Friday. And by Monday, a week later, the expectation was just to go back to what you were doing and act like nothing happened. Yep. There was no, that was it, you just dealt with it. On with your own. The best that you could. Yeah. But I remember during that time being out, and this happened a few times, being out and seeing people that went to my dad's church, that we had had dinner with, that we had you know babysat for their kids, went to school with their kids, look see me you know in the grocery store, or what have you, and turn around and walked away
4: mm. right,
3: and I was already um not dealing with it <laughs> right I, I didn't know how you know I mean that's another thing is that when something like this happens, you know, whether it be, you know, just trauma that people face, being raised in that environment, you have absolutely no tools to help yourself. You're just, you know, I felt like I was just like a walking open wound, you know, but to see people turn around and walk away, that was probably like one of the first turning points for me where I was, I was done. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only had, you know, we gone through that, you know, with my dad, but then to be abandoned by people in the church, right. that was a, that was a wake up call for me. Yeah.
0: Right. So it was the it was the reaction of the people around you that kind of pushed that final kind of there's something completely broken here with how we handle these relationships. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. absolutely. Right. So was that the response generally within the churches you were associated with? Was just silence towards you? Was it Absolutely Okay. Yep. Got it. Right. Wow. Uh,
3: yeah, it was not it was not talked about no. at all I, and I remember it what yeah. <laughs> it was it was probably it was several months later and now looking back there was a certain something I went through at home where I just I broke like he emotionally just broke and it kind of just came down at me all at once And now like after, you know, having that experience, I just remember just, I just started, I was sobbing and crying and I was shaking and I couldn't hold it in anymore. And, you know, with a reality that, you know, he wasn't coming back. And because at that point there wasn't, you know, there really wasn't any closure at all. Mm -mm. But just faced with that and the face, you know, faced with, never should have been you know in that marriage that I was in and never I just I didn't have any coping skills whatsoever I was just helpless you know and now like looking back I've you know after you know reading and researching things just going through what I really believed was like post traumatic stress syndrome right
4: mm-hmm.
3: and which I didn't even know until just several years ago that it's very common for people or for families that experience, you know, suicide of a family member. And so that's, you know, that's definitely where I was, but had no no one to talk to about it, you know, and no way to, I didn't even know, what, I had no way to fix it because I didn't know how or to cope with it.
0: No, I can, I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, like you said, even even outside the church, you know, it's a topic that wasn't really at the forefront of conversation, Mm-mm. but I, I feel like nope. it's one that still hasn't really caught up to, I mean, I, I mean, it's ba- I think it's barely catching on to evangelicalism, you know, in some way, mm-hmm. but within fundamentalist circles, it's definitely not something that's being openly discussed no. the way it should be. So, but um, well,
3: not only that, but what I remember, what was mentioned at, there was a couple of visitations at the funeral home and there, I remember them be your mentions of, well, you know, if you're a Christian and you commit suicide, then you, you know, you lose your religion, you know, right. yeah. you, got to, you, you can't, you can't hang on to that anymore. So you're going to go to hell for that one too. And just the fact that right. somebody would even, you know, bring that up at that time, but just, and I, I really don't know what the belief is as an IFB as far as that goes, because I don't, care to know what they believe about it but i i really believe that a lot of people um think that way that that was you know oh, well no, there's sin I, and then and then there's there's sin, sin yeah. and then they're the ones you just get kicked out you know right
0: <laughs> no I, I i remember hearing exact conversations like that and you know it's it's one of those things where it's like where there's no biblical backing for any of that no, <laughs> statement. Not. But it was such a commonly accepted thing. You know, I, I remember hearing people say that all the time. It was like, oh, you're good unless this. And it's like, well, where? Like what how do you yeah. <laughs> how do you justify that kind of thinking? And right. there there is none. It's just a I don't know where that idea even originated, but I remember hearing that exact same thing, you know, growing up in school. It was like, you know, people would talk about that. Anytime something like that happened, that was like a conversation. It was like, why is this a topic? Like, what, where on earth do you pull this one from? Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. But so, you know, obviously, you know, we've talked about some of the, you know, pretty, awful experiences and, and coming to a point of you know just realizing like you know this is not okay there's a lot of things here that need to be addressed so i'm i'm curious t- tell me a little bit about your journey kind of out of the movement and you know what's been most helpful to you as you've kind of you know reframed your mindset and kind of pushed <laughs> into uh, a new direction for really the first time kind of stepping out of that that world
2: Honestly, one of the biggest things that has happened for us, we had no idea, no idea until everything broke open with Jack Scott, the number of damaged people and what we had experienced, so many others had experienced. We just thought, okay, well, we got out. And for those reasons, I went on Facebook for a little while and I started getting a lot of friend requests from like people I went to school with and all that. Mm. And I thought they're just going to think my life is a circus sideshow and they want to know what's going on now that I'm not in the will of God. So I'm not doing that. But everything broke open with Jack Scott and we were just, it's a hard pill to swallow. The, The amount of damage and loss across the board from all of that, but it let me know that I wasn't the only one and that what happened with our dad, even though there were so many other issues, we felt a sigh of relief because we also realized that he was a victim as well. Yeah. I know for me, my ex-husband is the one that cleaned up my dad's car where he killed himself. Wow. And it wasn't until I only saw he, there was a note and he wrote an excerpt of the note on a piece of paper. And it just said, I can't handle the things of this world anymore. I'll be waiting to see everybody in heaven. Love Paul slash dad and we never had that conversation until probably about 10 12 years ago i asked him about it and i do feel like it had an impact on my marriage right and we actually end up leaving the church that we were in in north carolina (laughs) We had visited California several times. My um, ex father in law was living out there. We loved it, and we kind of just said, "Let's go." Hmm. And we moved to California, and we stopped going to church. Right. I, it was before it was before that. I was still living in Charlotte, and I just remember one time saying, "Well, I'm going to wear pants now." So. <laughs> I started doing it, but when we were around our family, like, I would change clothes, and so we moved to California, and that was, you know, it was kind of like our whole family for, it was about 10 years. It was kind of, we kind of all, like, went in our separate corners to, you know, lick our wounds. We didn't know what to do with ourselves, and it tore our family apart, Mm -hmm. and fortunately, We all have a really good relationship because even though there are um, some religious differences and all of that, for what we experienced, I think that we really hold on to each other because of what happened with our dad. So in California, we ended up, we were getting divorced and I was just telling Tracy this yesterday. I said, I remember exactly where I was standing in my apartment in california and i said to myself while i'm getting divorced my relationship with the lord is over Hmm. so i'm just gonna have to try to do the best that i can to be to live in this world that i really didn't know anything about (laughs) and i couldn't afford where we were living at the time in california so i moved out and a week later, I moved to Northridge, California. And a week later, there was a 6.8 earthquake, and I moved to the epicenter, Northridge. It was a big news story at the time, the 1994 Northridge earthquake. My first thought was, this is what I get. I was waiting for I was waiting for the punishment. And I honestly felt that that earthquake was my Punishment because you're always you know you're always waiting when you're not in the world, God. You know yeah. something bad is something bad is going to happen, and so just you know trying to live a quote unquote normal life in a world that I wasn't prepared for. I really think too, you know, I think back about some of the decisions that I've made in my life, and they haven't been good decisions. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why did I do that? And <laughs> I, I kind of think now when you're raised to not have a mind of your own, and as a female, you're less than a man, yeah. and you don't have a thought process, you don't have any critical thinking skills, you're not emotionally At the age where you're supposed to be. So basically in my 30s, I was probably had the coping mechanisms of maybe an 18-year-old or younger.
4: Yeah.
2: So that's been really relevant to me over the past couple of years. I've been able to give myself some grace in that area, thinking about, well, look what I had to deal with in the decisions that I made. And there were decisions that I made. I had things thrown in my lap that I had no business being involved with. I'm like, okay, well, this is brought into my life. This must be God's will.
4: (laughs) Yeah, right.
2: So I did it, and they were some of the most tragic circumstances in my life. And I think back now, I'm like, why? What did I, what was I thinking? And I didn't, I wasn't prepared to deal with different situations and decisions and I kind of just went willy-nilly with it and it's it's caused a lot of problems and I know for Tracy and myself without going into a lot of detail but our, we've had difficulties with relationships right with marriage and you know even I and I'll admit this and I don't think that anyone would ever know this but I feel like I'm socially awkward. I don't know why. <laughs> but, and I can't even explain it. There's, there's something there. And I can play it off. Right. But the always, you know, the second guessing and the, and, you know, there was something that happened in my life several years ago. And I, I made a decision that I wish I wouldn't have made. And about a year later, I was diagnosed with melanoma. And I'm like, okay, well, there it is. There's the punishment.
0: Right, right.
2: And what a horrible existence that it lends you to. So I've, and what I have found through the years too, is it's very difficult to find counseling geared towards where we are now because if you go to a christian counselor are they going to pull you the other way and tell you you're not in the will of god you're wrong and if you repent and stop backsliding your life will be great
0: oh 100 yeah
2: and then (laughs) the other part of finding i i don't think i've yet to find someone i've come very close but who really truly understands the effects mm. of the IFB and how you deal with relationships and how you deal with authority and, and how you deal with being so insanely critical and hard on yourself right. because there is still, you're still reaching for that perfection.
0: Right. Mm. Well, I have to connect you. I have to connect you with someone else too when we get off this call, but <laughs> there's someone who. Um, I had on the show, her name's Claire Horner and she specializes in trauma, but trauma within religious contexts. And so she Mm -hmm. talks about abuse from a religious, you know, like strict religious environments. And we had a really good conversation and she helped me figure out quite a bit about why I take the way that I do, but, (laughs) but she's, yeah, she'd be great to talk to, but I definitely relate to what you just said about feeling, you know, always feeling like this sense of like, second guessing what people are thinking when you're talking to them. You know, I, I always like, I'm such a weird person because I I'm very extroverted, but I'm also feel very introverted. (laughs) So like I, you know, when I have a conversation with someone, I constantly feel like I'm reading something negative from them, even though there's nothing negative whatsoever in the conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'll just sit there and dwell. Like I, Working as a freelancer in business, like I'll sometimes I'll reach out to clients and I'll be like, Hey, I haven't heard anything. And I know that you're probably not, but I just want to check in and make sure everything's okay. And, you know, make sure I didn't do anything to, to upset you or, you <laughs> yeah. know, and it's yeah. such a weird, it's such a weird place to be. But I think a lot of that does come from that environment of like, you're constantly being critiqued and judged and, you know, are you wearing the right clothes, doing the right thing? Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know? yeah. Mm-hmm. So,
3: I think so. You know, another element of that, too, is just, and um, I don't, I don't know if you ever felt this way, but there was a lot of fear growing up. And I remember having this conversation with Tina a couple of years ago. And I said, you know, when we were like five, and we started going to Sunday school for the first time. And I remember like being excited about going to Sunday school because, you know, Jesus loves you and you're Jesus's little lamb and Jesus wants to be your friend and, you know, who doesn't want that? It was so great, you know, and actually, you know, it felt good. And then I just remember thinking like, at what point did it just turn into, you know, if you don't, tell everyone about the Lord that you run into, their blood is on your hands when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And they're going to turn know, and they, look
2: at you and say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me?
3: Right. You As know, and then in the
2: eternal lake of fire.
3: I mean, it, it went from that to just constantly just being, just being afraid, you know, and those, I don't know if you ever saw these movies, A Distant Thunder. And what was the other one, Tina? about the rapture and they were, they're horrifying movies for kids to watch. And, you know, we were allowed to watch those. And I just, you know, it's, it's hard to shake that sometimes just that fear of it's okay to have a voice. It's okay to, you know, be who you are. Not second guessing every time something, you know, when something goes wrong, like this is, you know, this is what I deserve. This is what I get. So that's been, you know, another factor that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to.
2: I know for Tracy and I, we talk about this a lot. We are terrified of what we feel that we've been t- taught about the rapture. Right. Even though I know I'm saved, there's always in the back of my head, well, what if?
4: What if? No, what
2: if? People- what if you went too far and God really did put you on the shelf because you didn't come back to Him? Right. Or, or what? You know, there's, there's that, and we talk about, I mean, anything to do with the any kind of apocalypse or zombies, I don't want to know anything about it. <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm.
0: Right. Like I
2: can't, I, I can't with any of the Terminator oh. movies or whatever. Like anything with that, I, 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 it just throws me into a tailspin.
0: Yeah, the rapture, uh, the rapture trauma is real. It's <laughs> like so you know, I, I always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I I remember always being like, did I, you know, just in case I'm going to pray one more time, just in case I didn't do it yeah. right the, the last 25 times. I just want to make sure because I don't want to get, you know, and then I got really scared because I had people that were like, well, you know, after the rapture, you know, there was people like my, my grandpa always was like, you know, after the rapture, you can't get saved. He said the <laughs> left behind movies are, I was like, oh man, double, <laughs> oh, yeah. double whammy. So yeah. And then you
3: gotta get branded with a six 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 on your head. And right. Yeah.
0: Right. So but, well uh, not
3: only that, but we were talking just recently and it's I think it's the first time I ever said this to Tina. But I'm terrified of dying. Yeah. Terrified. Yeah. I mean, the thought of because because you don't know. Right. You know? I mean, is it true? Like what you know,
0: right? Yeah, no, hundred a- percent. And just the whole, yeah.
3: and like the whole thing about the rapture and and anything about outer space just uh, makes my skin <laughs> crawl. I can't stand it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> God, God forbid you wake up in the morning and the whole family's out of the house because you just know.
3: Right, that. exactly. I was going to say that. How many times have you walked into a room and you're like, "Hello," wait a minute, and the first thing <laughs> that. The first thing that pops in your mind is like, oh my gosh, the rapture just happened, and here I am.
0: That's so funny. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely that's definitely an interesting uh, interesting side effect of the theology there. But uh, yeah, no, oh, trust me, i've I've had all the I've had all the crazy thoughts, and I, I feel like I'm just past the the rapture paranoia. But I've I definitely for a long time that was like the most terrifying thing to think about was, you know, you're like, it shouldn't be, I feel like this shouldn't be this terrifying, but here we are. But uh, well, I, I hate to, I hate to cut the conversation off, but I actually have to run to another meeting here in a few minutes, but, but I definitely, I'm I'm definitely open if we ever want to reconnect and, and do a, you know, part two to this, I would be more than willing to, but I, I really appreciate both of you sharing. I have a lot of people that I want to connect you with. Well, only two. Uh, I have two people <laughs> that I want to connect you with who I think would be awesome to connect with as well. And but I really appreciate you sharing and and loved getting to talk to both of you. It really really means yeah. a lot.
3: Uh, we appreciate you too, Eric, so much and you know everything that you're doing and I don't know if you realize the impact that you're making, but even for us to just to be able to sit here and and, you know, share and laugh a little and, you know, is really, really healing and important. So it thank is. you. That's awesome. And, That's
2: and, cool. and yeah. I do want to say, if anyone listens that knows us, is that some of the best people we've ever met in our lives were through church. Right. And there are some that just had an impact on our lives that have been truly amazing so it wasn't all horrible and i i really do cherish the people that we came across that were genuine and caring and loving and 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 that means there are some really great christians out there and and we're thankful that they have been a part of our lives as well yes
0: absolutely i second all of that um Mm -hmm. and i know there's a lot of people that that think i you know I, I'm sure you've heard the same things that think I'm bitter, or angry or, you know, and I, I really do. Like I, I know that this podcast centers around a pretty hard topic regarding that world. And I think it is a legitimate problem within it. But I also, you know, I was just talking to someone recently, like I spent, you know, the first 20 years of my life in that and I've met You know, I've met the best people I know and the worst people I know all in that (laughs) world. And so Mm -hmm. you know, the reason I do this show is because that's the context I grew up in. So that's what I know to Mm -hmm. talk about. And that's, you know, but yeah, I I second everything you just said and and Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's really meaningful and I think it does show concern and care that you're willing to share your story. I think that's one of the one of the most caring things you can do is is to share your story with others. So but well awesome. Well, Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and jump off here, but I'll keep, I'll, I'll text you guys once we, once we get done. And I definitely want to connect you with, with a few different people that I think would be really helpful and would be good common connections to have. So
3: that would be amazing. uh, Thank you so much, Eric.
0: All right. Thank you so much. You guys have a good night. Thank
3: you. You too. Bye bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the preacher boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, Please leave a review on iTunes, and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com.
3: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.